there are two main ways that the Buddha emphasized that uh, two approaches whereby we can respond to the sense of being trapped, caught in an identity, a pattern, a fear, a compulsion, whereby we get uh, sometimes swept away with a, an emotion that seems so much like me that maybe is anger and we lash out outwardly or sometimes inwardly to ourselves, harshly judging. We all know that. Many of us, this endemic in our culture, voice of self-judgment. We're trapped by some sort of impression of who we think we are that maybe boxes us in or makes us feel alienated in terms of our race or sexual orientation, our nationality, our body size, our body capacity, our mental capacity. Sometimes we can judge or we feel like we've been judged in schools or society as a, as a failure. Two main uh, approaches that uh, the Buddha, how he encourages us to respond to these situations where we're trapped, limited. First is wisdom. All this mindfulness practice, this connecting with how things are, training our attention to cultivate a primary relationship with, with body, with sensation, with posture, so that not just moments of being connected to how it is, but that those moments flow, flow into one another, so that there's a stability of being grounded and that those moments of uh, sustained mindfulness can flower into the, what the Buddha called samadhi, or gatheredness, where we're not so fragmented and scattered, mind here, body there, emotions there, bumping into things. When we're more composed, that's what's called a unified state. A lot of our meditation is directed toward that. First, so that we can at least have some ease when there's some unification. It's supported by relaxation, by learning to savor, to welcome and receive the energies, impressions of this moment, even if we don't, even if they're painful or fatigued or scattered by relaxing and gathering in, being with these sometimes discordant energies, they then are able to be blessed by awareness and harmonize. That's what the Buddha called a pleasant abiding in the here and now. A true holiday, a holy day where we, for a time, gather, restore, 
refresh. But the Buddha also realized that that gatheredness of mind, when it's turned toward anything, that focus, then the nature of whatever it is we're looking at will reveal itself. So when a mind that is relatively gathered turns then, this is called insight, turns to look at these patterns of desire or aversion or apprehension to speak up, maybe when we feel we should, feeling disempowered or oppressed or voiceless, or concerned but afraid to express that. When we turn a relatively gathered attention to whatever it is, then the ephemeral changing nature of that thought, that feeling tone, that stream, those inner voices that are so convincing, this is me, are revealed to be changing. That might not sound like much at first, but when we see, especially when we commit ourselves to periods of really, as we were reflecting last night, periods of stopping, pausing, reflecting, then we'll notice that all these convincing moods and inner dialogue is telling us who we are. But if we wait, we'll see that we're inspired by meditation and we're going to practice the rest of our life for the welfare of all beings. Then not long after that, we find ourselves getting kind of restless. Uh, Maybe tomorrow I'll do it. Sometimes we can't take another moment. Sometimes we just wish, God, I should have gone to a movie. (laughs) This movie's not the one I want to see. (laughs) As we start to see change, then we realize these shapes, these patterns that seem like me are not reliable. They become otherwise in every instant, just as the nature of these so-called words, which is a noun, a word. I'm this way. She's that way. But when we hear the word, the word, I'm good. I'm hopeless. I'm a hopeless case. I'm a hopeless case. Don't play a game with me. I really am a hopeless case. When there's some composure and we realize that that sense of being a hopeless case are really bubble-like or like a lightning flash, we notice they touch the heart, but if we are present enough, we'll realize that those words, feeling tones, keep melting, merging in the ground of listening, of awareness. And so we might call it my mood, my thoughts, my body, me, but it's a way of talking and so we start to get the sense for anatta, it's not self. Yes, it's a manifestation of me, but it's not all of me. 
I don't have to follow it. We realize rather than being trapped inside these moods and thoughts and feelings that those patterns are revealing their guests that come before this sky-like heart. So as we wisdom, hmm, wisdom, when we realize the changing nature and realize ultimately there's nothing to grasp, we're trying to grasp a waterfall, it eludes us. The Buddha compared it to trying to grasp empty space. We might get exhausted trying to do it, but we're not going to be able to get a hold of empty space. So that naturally leads to letting go. That's the freedom. The heart then becomes freed. Freed from who we think we are. So it is said by the great uh, sage Nisargadatta, wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks the life of the awakened one flows. I'm not a thing. We get trapped in these walls of the mind when we recognize change. We don't have to make ourselves let go. At a certain point there's a weariness with trying to squeeze conditions to be the way we think they should be. It's that cooking sand hoping to create a delicious nourishing meal. We get disenchanted. The illusion falls away and little by little there's a letting go. I'm not a thing. And we experience the spaciousness of heart and touch into that ground in the midst of all the change, the flow, the comings and goings, when we let things come and go, just like those dust, when they're illuminated by the light, the dust particles dancing, when there's letting go, one recognizes the dust dancing, but the space remains untroubled, unmoved. When we let go, we touch into that place where all things merge, all separation, all separation dissolves. That's the first important approach. But some patterns are very pernicious, deeply rooted. especially our patterns of aversion. We don't want to let go, we want to keep them away. Keep pain away, keep them away, keep that which is threatening us away. And sometimes we can hide out in peacefulness where we let go and experience a measure of uh, ease 
but there's still a sense of that being fragile. Then the Buddha encouraged kindness, loving kindness. Compassion says, I'm everything. That's the other great way of uh, freeing ourselves from these walls of the mind that make us feel cut off, segregated. Kindness and compassion welcome, open and include. The Buddha compared these two um, approaches with the same, he gave them equal importance. He said even a a finger slap of noticing the changeable nature of things in this very moment. Even a finger snap has immense what he called punya or auspicious energy for helping bring forth that which is for our welfare and for the welfare of others. Noticing change, even for a finger snap. Tremendous transformative power. Because samsara, this endlessly trying to find, hold on to pleasure, hold on to success, hold on to power and getting things the way I want. When we notice that in that moment, in this moment, everything that seems so solid, our body, You call it my body. The forms in this room. New York City, as we touch, open to her with the sounds coming and going. When we realize it's just a cascading stream of shifting impressions, even if just for a moment, that puts a hairline fracture in that objectification, the the sense that there really is something out there we can grab hold of. That leads to letting go, fading, and the great return back to this one heart where all things merge. The Buddha also said a finger snap of kindness Just once when he was talking to his uh, monks, he said, bhikkhus, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, if one of you cultivates loving kindness for as long as a finger snap, he is called a true bhikkhu. He's not destitute of jhana, of deep meditation. He carries out, or they carry out, the master's teaching. They respond to advice and they do not eat the country's alm food in vain. So what should be said of those who make much of it? The essence of kindness. Notice that sometimes when we're trying, even in meditation, to get somewhere and we feel frustrated, we're trying to get more calm, more collected, 
have some insight. Notice how that makes us feel contracted. Or notice if there's a sense of, am I fitting in in here, the sense of me and you? How am I coming across? Notice what, how that feels. Notice what happens if, if we encourage the heart to welcome, to practice not pushing anything away. that we're all in this together. Not to pretend to like everything, but to allow, to widen, widen the frame of this moment. Why kindness is, uh, one of the reasons kindness is is so important is sometimes these deep-rooted tendencies, when we just try to overcome them, they become quite pernicious, deeply rooted, stubborn. And the kindness that's not forcing can really make a difference. When the gentleman was telling this story, Today on the, about the subway, it reminded me of when I was uh, sick in the monastery, very ill. Three years after getting over typhoid, I was laid out with all this internal bleeding, internal bleeding and diarrhea and, and uh, incredible weakness. I just had to lay in the attic of our monastery. I could uh, just make it out to brush my teeth uh, when I could eat something, but I'd have to lean on things. The monks used to joke I'd, I'd get exhausted after even brushing the top part of my mouth and have to take a break. Conversations were exhausting. Everything was exhausting. Uh, but uh, the magic carpet was my beloved uh, mat I could lie on. Up in this attic room, in our monastery uh, in England, in West Sussex, on a dreary, cold, uh, quickly getting dark winter's afternoon, I don't know what made me happen to look out the window, because I rarely, rarely, rarely ever went outside. I looked out the window, this little attic window. It was uh, misty, damp, cold, Uh, but I saw someone walking down the driveway with with a rope. And even though my eyes aren't that good, the feeling tone, I just knew that guy's gonna try to kill himself. Yet the road seemed, the drive seemed deserted. I don't know where the monks were. I felt I had to do something. Again, just like was being shared in the story, I just got to do something. I thought I, I didn't see anyone. I went outside my room, quickly just wrapped a robe, my robe, thin robe around me. Ochre colored robe went downstairs, no one. So I just, I I went out 
holding Kuan Yin's name, Namo Kuan Chin Pusa, I was wondering how I was going to manage and about this person. And as I got out to the drive, I saw he was about a hundred yards or so, 150 yards ahead, turning into the lane. So I, I tried to hurry, holding my mantra, follow him. I saw he turned left. So I, I finally got there and then I uh, didn't see him straight on, but there was a little turn in these lanes and over the centuries these rural lanes sink down into the ground so you're, you're, you're almost underground. That the, the level of the fields is quite a few feet above you. So I quickly got to the turn as quick as I could and I looked and he had turned down there but he still was 100, 150 yards ahead. Uh, and I saw him going to the forest. And uh, so I was holding my mantra to the Great Compassion One as I, different thoughts and feelings were going in my mind and I walked as fast as I could and I, I turned, turned into the forest and just as I had thought, uh, I found him. He had his rope hooked around a, a branch and he was uh, just preparing to hang himself. And he was not pleased to see me. He was, get away, you don't, you don't understand. He was in a whirlpool, talk about being trapped a whirlpool. That's how we, the Buddha calls them floods. We get swept away. We don't even feel like we have a choice. And sometimes wisdom just doesn't cut it. We don't have the capacity sometimes. But something made me look out that window. I like to think it's, uh, there's something that listens in the world that responds, that can nudge us if we receive the message. Anyway, I kept, make, kept making noise, talking, and at one point I really did catch his attention. He looked at me and he said, because he knew my name, the sick monk, he said, Kitty Sorrow, your teeth are chattering. I hadn't even noticed, but it was cold and I only had a thin robe and my teeth was going Prrrr. And then in a moment, he just uh, took off his thick black leather motorcycle jacket. He'd been in prison and done things that he was ashamed of and mistreated women and he had all kinds of confused stuff going on. But that one little gesture, his compassion, he felt my cold. He didn't do a big calculation. He was just ready to kill himself. But something in the heart resonated. So he wasn't in the whirlpool anymore. He was linked to me and my mandala. 
of energy and reflection. And he just put that jacket around my monk's robe. And I hugged him. And it was curious. It was like hugging, I've never hugged a porcupine. (laughs) But it felt like hugging 10,000 burning hot needles. His nervous system felt so painful. I hugged him. And for that moment, from the moment that he took that jacket off and made a gift, an offering, that's free. He was freed from that trap. Compassion, as he resonated with my discomfort, that I freed. Aversion isolates when we, compassion, kindness, when we welcome, that's that unified field. For those moments he was free. Or like the time I was a prison chaplain as a monk down on Dartmoor prison in the moors of southwest England in Devon. A group of prisoners that had never been allowed to meet together was always considered too dangerous. But this project I was a part of called the Angulimala Project. Angulimala was a great murderer who the Buddha turned around. He became one of the great awakened disciples, and yet he'd been a a serial killer. There were reasons, but the force and power of the Buddha's kindness, compassion, and wisdom stopped him. And he was able to he still had to endure the consequence of what he had done in terms of repercussions, but he became a great awakened disciple of the Buddha. And so this Ngulimala project I was a part of was uh, before the prison only gave a prayerful instruction to certain religions. I think they had uh, Christianity and uh, I think uh, Judaism and uh, Islam, but there was there was no provision for Buddhists, and so these uh, prisoners were allowed to meet on a special occasion to honor the Buddha's uh, birth. And I, I went down only time to that particular prison. I was let in, checked out searched through the barbed wire the, into the stain, uh, gray stone walls, led back through the various corridors into a little classroom where there was about a dozen inmates. 
who for the first time were together and I went in, sat with them. And as I was just trying to introduce ourselves, the, the guards, there were two guards outside our door, they started uh, heckling us, especially uh, they, in my monk's robe and shaved, shaved head, they assumed I was a Hare Krishna, so they started making up funny lines about, Hey, Harry, have you seen Larry? No, but I, I'd like to see Mary. And you know, they were going, Harry, Harry, Harry Krishna, things like that. But uh, what was worrisome is the, the, uh, this was a special occasion for these, uh, uh, the prisoners, for these inmates in this room, and they were getting quite agitated. And I, I didn't quite know what to do with his heckling and the agitation building in the room. So the first thing I just thought, oh, let's practice, practice some metta meditation, some kindness meditation. And uh, just in an instant, uh, the guy on my, my, my left said, I don't have any kindness. If I had the chance, I'd break his neck again. He was in for uh, murder he had killed someone. So that was an awkward moment. <laughs> but I rallied. And the heckling continued. And I said, no, we're not, we're not, in this kindness meditation, we're not pretending. You're not pretending that you have kindness or this or that. We're allowing, we're not pretending to like the heckling of the guards. You're not pretending to feel a certain way toward anybody. But that conviction that I don't have any kindness, I'd break his neck again. Can you allow that? Allow, just not add more hostility if there's hostility, can one listen to that, welcome that, practice being at ease with that, the heckling, the sensations, the feelings that we have. It's called an immeasurable abiding, a divine abiding, because it can't be disturbed. Whatever is coming up, we're not pretending to like everything. We're allowing it, offering it a place in the heart, allowing it to be. And as that happened, uh, there was a, what I call a meltdown. Arthur started crying. We all started expanding as we were just receiving the sensations, some of which are painful. The sounds, just allowing the heckling, breathing with, relaxing with, resting in this abiding that determines whatever comes and goes not to add hostility. It's all welcomed within the undivided heart. As we started expanding, little by little the well, we just noticed at one point the heckling stopped. 
and the uh, quite gentle and beautiful sounds of Arthur crying. And the sense of my body, your body, my thoughts, your thoughts, this, that, all these walls, every impression, every pattern of thought arose and dissolved. And so for a time, the prison was in us. We were vast. Maybe those guards were still imprisoned in their heckling, or maybe they'd been touched by what we did. I don't know, but it didn't matter. So for a period of time, there was a real sense of freedom. We were freed from being imprisoned. Yes, we, our bodies, we could still say, were in that prison, but those bodies were impressions, sensations. Our abiding was measureless. Wisdom says, I'm nothing, not a thing. Compassion says, I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows. Whatever is trapping us, whoever we think we are, is empty. Like lightning flashes in a night sky, if we hold it lightly, we'll see they flash and dissolve into the immensity. Form is emptiness. But that emptiness has within it every single form, all potentiality. Form is empty, but also emptiness has within it all form. The spacious heart where we sense the deep kinship we have with all beings, as all beings merge in this original essence, this undying ground of being where all things merge, the Buddha said, where all things find their completion. Everything finds its homecoming in Nibbana, this place where all distinctions dissolve. And yet within that sky-like ground of being, it has room in it for all the manifestations, our uniqueness that flows and appears in our own wondrous way. The form is empty, but the emptiness has within it all forms. When we cling to forms, we generate suffering. But when we hold forms lightly, it could be called wonderful existence. Our Chinese master talks about the perfect non-dual 
union of form and emptiness. Kuan Yin talks about it when she says in the Heart Sutra, form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. Our Chinese master puts it like this. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness. When the Master explained this statement, he said, what is our Self-nature like? This nature is like empty space. Would you say there is anything in empty space? There is absolutely everything in empty space. But you cannot see it. The existence within emptiness is wonderful existence. The lack of emptiness within emptiness is true emptiness. Since true emptiness is not empty, it is called wonderful existence. And since wonderful existence is not existence, it is called true emptiness. These two names are one. You investigate them in detail and find, however, that there is not even one. We have about uh, 30 minutes before the ending of this day, so there's an opportunity now if there's any reflections on anything that we've uh, covered in this day or last night or any questions or anything you'd like to bring up for our collective uh, consideration. Now we have an opportunity for that. Hi. Thank you so much for being here again this weekend. I really appreciate it. Um, I recently read the book you both co-authored, Listening to the Heart, and you talked in that book about, I'm not sure I'll say it right, the Sharumanaga Sutta, as you did today. Sharangama. Sharangama yeah. Sutta. And I was struck by the um, excerpt you had from it, um, which talked about how um, Av- Avalakstra, Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin was, um, there was the advice given to Ananda um, to practice listening to the sound. Mm -hmm. And I took that to heart because I find like that's home for me. Mm -hmm. You know, like the way I could come back in the court throughout the day is 
to listen to that sound, you know, because if my mind is chattering, I can't hear it. Mm -hmm. So it's a quieting, grounding force for me. And so I Googled it and found this text, like, so thick. <laughs> and I was wondering, is there some other version of it or instru <laughs> instructions, like, as for meditation, is it as simple as listening to the quiet between your ears when, when you shut up internally? Thank you. Thank you for that uh, uh, question. No, it's a very long uh, discourse. It's very important um, for describing a, a meditation that is sharangama, which means durable, uh, because in, uh, in the Theravada language it would be called turning your mind to the deathless or uh, normally we focus on on objects like the the breathing and that's a beautiful practice which we encourage too where where you know the breath comes and goes and and um, um, there's swelling and subsiding and and sometimes uh, when one is in touch with the bodily energies, which is the subtle breath, it's more stressed or it's more at ease. And so that's taking an external object as a, um, as a focus, and that, that's very powerful. Uh, Kuan Yin's meditation is listening to sounds, but it's combined with reflection. So it's what's called listening to the sounds purely. And uh, so at first, just as you were doing, one is just listening, listening to sounds. But notice, and this is what uh, uh, the great wise uh, Bodhisattva Manjushri said when he was commenting on this important practice, he was saying the ear organ is very special. It's, it's hard to match because ears, can, we can hear sounds far away or sounds close. We even hear in our sleep. And uh, so, in listening, it tends to be global. We're in the midst of sound. It isn't always the case, but seeing can, sometimes can set up a, a sense of duality, I see you. Uh, it, is, it, it can sometimes be a little easier to be with sound, as, as in the sense of just being with. So one is noticing sounds, it brings us to the present, but one can also notice that the sounds are coming and going. What makes the Sharangama Samadhi special is you're also noticing the, the listening silence, that which remains. So even one's internal thoughts, we can listen to them, but we're interested in where they come from. So it's one thing to chase sounds, where we want the sounds we want, we don't want the sounds we don't want. We, when we're chasing thoughts, we're, 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 we're liking certain thoughts or we're terrified by other thoughts. But when we listen to our own listening, it's called returning the hearing. Then we hear sounds come and go, but in not chasing sounds, we get down to the essence of hearing or the essence of consciousness, that which just is. So we were encouraged to listen to the ending of sound, 
the ending of thoughts, the ending of a thought, we don't keel over dead in that space before the next thought. There's still presence. The thoughts come just like this sound and go. But what remains? The Sharangama Samadhi or Kuan Yin Samadhi is returning the hearing or returning the light or listening in to that which remains. That which is not coming, that which is not going. Just like the simile of the dust dancing or the lightning flashing, just with a slight adjustment of our attention, we're still watching the lightning flash, but we're not trying to catch it. The gaze is more soft, and we can notice the lightning flashes and dissolves in the measureless sky. We start to notice the sky. Internally, when we're letting be, letting go, and returning the hearing. Thoughts can come and go and they don't trouble us, just like birds flying across the sky and we notice that which remains, or the silence around the sounds. So as I said before, just as space is to form, and silence, is the sound, so is awareness to all phenomenon. So the origin of Zen, what's called Chan meditation or Kuan Yin's meditation is returning that listening to listen into that ground. And so one of the techniques is to ask a question. It's called Huato. Huato means the head of thought. The thought itself is the tail. Like what the head of thought means, the origin of thought. Where does thought come from? So that moment right before the thought or right after the thought disappears. So the question, for example, like Tanisha was encouraging us, who is this happening to? Who? And for a moment the mind stops and turns around. It's a slight feeling of doubt. We want to make it subtle. There's no thoughts. Who? But we're still awake, pondering. Or what? What remains? We can notice the thoughts, the sounds are all coming and going. The sound of my voice comes and goes. But what is it that isn't moving? Where does every sound return to? So the questions provide a gap where we're having the chance to appreciate consciousness without creating the walls of the mind, without conceptualization. If that gets too intense, then we can use a phrase like, let go. That phrase is in the heart, then it dissolves, but it reminds us just not to cling. 
With each out-breath you can have a subtle let go. So we're resting in allowing things to come and go. Resting in that place where everything returns. Master Wah has a, there is a commentary that you can, you can read about it. It's long, but uh, I've just picked out what's really struck me uh, from, I've been studying his teachings for like the last 20, 38 years. So, uh, but the essence of it is, is listening and rather than chasing something, letting the awareness come back to notice awareness itself. Mm. Thank you so much. Mm. I've, um, <clears throat> I've been feeling, I, I've been very uh, challenged and interested by a, point that I heard um, Ajahn Viridamo make a, a few times and recently in talks that I've been listening to. He really emphasizes his position that um, all the Bharami, all the Brahma Viharas, all the practices, metta, everything um, should all be seen as uh, not as ends unto themselves but as means to the end of you know, non-identification and letting go. And I, I, I mean, I find that very profound and very challenging. And I'm, I, I'm wondering how can I, I guess, how can I do that? But also, like, is there, is there a quality to a practice or to a, a state or whatever that is oriented towards letting go? I feel like so much, even if I do feel like I'm, you know, I feel a difficult mind state, so I want to, open up to it, I want to let it into consciousness, I still feel like so much of that is characterized by a sort of, well, there's me, and then I, there's this anger, and I want to feel good, or I want to release the anger, or, you know, it's, it's very much about my relationship and my own experience. So how can I identify or how can I cultivate these practices that are oriented towards just actually like a non-identification rather than my own experience, and right? changing it? Mm. Thank you. Well, I think Ajahn Viridhamma was was just uh, nudging you to the to the ultimate. But uh, you know, the the Buddha also uh, wanted us to feel good. You know, if 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 there isn't some some. Uh, joy in the practice or something that helps us in some way feel better, it's, it's hard for it to be sustained. And so the Buddha realized this. So he didn't just teach, you know, Nibbana is the ultimate. And that's when we, we come home. Uh, but, you know, he taught a whole graduated path like, you know, generosity, which is one of the great paramitas, they all carry us across. It's the first one because, you know, the whole thing that keeps us locked is the sense of grabbing. So when we share something, 
even if it's a heavy, thick, black leather motorcycle jacket, you know, he felt good, and I felt good. And, uh, you know, so in, even in samadhi, he encouraged it's okay to, to do something that's a pleasant abiding in the here and now that can provide a, a ground then for the more subtle practices of, of, of change and then seeing through. But the Buddha also said, you know, the most, the ultimate practice for overcoming these patterns it's not necessarily what we want to hear, but he said, is patience. You know, it's... Some of them are drawn, lines drawn in water, which are just, they're there, they're gone. That was easy. But some are drawn in sand, he said. But, you know, that's still manageable. A few waves. It was there, and then it's, ooh, nice and smooth. But he said some of our conditionings, some cars are lines drawn in stone. And that requires a lot of patience, a lot of kindness. And so that's, it's natural to, that you see a sense of wanting to... But just see it. Just that is not nothing. Our teacher Ajahn Chah said, nah. Okay, so you can't let go. He said, but seeing that you're cl- noticing that you're clinging is... Seventy percent. He said, give yourself credit for that. Okay, so then it takes some patience to sense, what's this clenching about? What's that? And, you know, the moments of seeing the change. This is me. I want this. I don't want that. And just even moments. And just, just to be patient, it does unfold. And to remember that Sometimes we have this idea we have to get rid of everything. But even with the patterns, even with my me wanting it to feel good for me, and I know I shouldn't have that wanting it to feel good for me, but I do have that, and, but then he, you know, the, said that I, I should, and so you see the mind going like this and thinking, wow, samadhi, well, who's that for? Maybe they're sitting like a little statue over in the corner, but I'm going all over the place. Vimuttisara sabedama, the Buddha said, the essence of every single condition is freedom. So even with, if you're kind, I mean a really gentle kindness, really gentle, just even let your pattern keep playing out. Oh, I'm never going to get there, you know, I know I should be that way, but I can't be that way, and, you know, I'm, I still got to get through that Netflix series, and I'm supposed to be letting go, but <laughs> I, I need this. And, and so you hear that, but just to get a feeling of when you see a thousand leaves shimmering when the, in the wind, if you try to figure them all out, that's called a recipe for a headache. But you can, they're just shimmering and just get a sense what space is making it possible. Just get a sense of not, that's where the kindness, just allowing. And get a sense that all that patterning is shifting, moving within something that never moves. There's a part of us that never moves, that never is disturbed, that isn't troubled, that's always here and now, that the Buddha says is, ehi pasiko. He says it's 
inviting us. And he didn't say only if you get rid of this and only if you get rid of that. So one can even get a feeling for finding the peace even in the midst of when the pattern's there. Of just letting it be. I think he, Ajahn V was just encouraging one not to put Nibbana too far away. But some of the manifestations of these patterns just they, they wear away slowly. But the essence is always here this essence, this ground that is spacious, is uh, always beckoning, either through just hold a little more lightly and let go. If we can't let go, just welcome. Letting go, welcoming. These are the movements of the heart that take us beyond the bounds of these patterns. just wanted to say, listening to Kisaro um, reminds me, and I wanted to share this with the group, because um, this last teaching that you did reminded me of your uh, online teachings for a year, and I just wanted to share that that's some of the best, in fact, the best uh, online teachings that I've heard and that have helped me have been theirs, and I think you tell them how they can find it, or shall I? Uh, I think it's Damaguri, is it? Um, but I think if you if you if you really want to be inspired, like I've been inspired, and, and have my teachings and my practice um, move, I would I would tune in. Uh, that, thank I you, can Jerry. only say that with, with reality. Yes. That that's my reality, and I wanted to share that with you. Thank you so much. So what Jerry's re- referring to is um, an online course that we developed at Dharma Giri. Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, Dharma, as you know, and then Giri is a Sanskrit word which means mountain. Dharma Giri is the name that we gave to the center that we started in South Africa um, in the year 2000. Uh, It's a small, very small hermitage. We mainly started to do um, long retreats. And we led to um, year-long courses there, uh, for primarily at that time for South Africans. One of, one of the participants of that, those courses, that was in 2007 and 2008, is now in the teacher training. Nolita Zengiwe um, from Johannesburg is now in the, the, the IMS teacher training. So, but um, anyhow, that's just a side thing for you to know. But. Um, we, we um, then had them taped, and then we put, sent them out in CD for people that were geographically dispersed. You know, like America, so that was quite a big country. So, um, and then they found themselves going up online when the CDs, DVDs weren't quite the thing anymore, and now it's been edited and it's available um, via the Dhammagiri website. And um, it's dhammagiri.org. And um, if you go to that menu, I'm just trying to think which menu tab it's under. I think it's called Dharma Online. No, I think it's Sacred Mountain Sangha. Oh, it's under Sacred Mountain Sangha. Yeah, we've also got another website, Sacred Mountain Sangha. 
on the menu on the menu yeah so on the menu tab <laughs> um and Dharmagiri is like about halfway along um you'll see click on that sacred mount sangha and then as it pulls down i think it's online training yeah. and um that's basically it's three modules each module is 12 lessons long and each lesson contains a sutta mostly reading short not long short um some accompanied dharma talks to support the sutta some inquiry questions some meditation tips and there there the first two modules are theravada and then the last module deals with um chan and pure land so questions about the shurangama sutra kuan yin practices um also there's quite a lot of other material on on that site it's dana based basically it's free and we we do in theory um support the course with monthly uh, course uh, o- online course but we've had that sort of fell apart the last year and a half because we had so much movement going on in our life we were shutting down the house in Tennessee Kisar's family house after his father died and then we were handing over things in South Africa and we were a bit homeless and looking where to land we've now landed in the bay area but we're hoping to pick those up probably next month to continue to be able to support students on the course but now it's gone all over the world it's quite interesting when we just sits there and people click on and access the material it's great hmm. g i r i G R I R R I Giri. So please, yeah. There's the lady over there. So I think this will be our last question. The truth and reconciliation process that Nelson Mandela used in South Africa. I'd like to know. You know, what's, how is it now, or in your view, how did it end up? And is it, and is it a model? I've heard it suggested as a model for, for example, the sexual harassment issue we have here in America now with all this difficulty. And just, is yeah. it? Yeah, the TRC was a very powerful process. I think it really helped the country shift from um a vengeful place a very understandable vengeful place that could have uh, it was very very fragile post apartheid there was a lot of uh, warring factions a lot of which had been stimulated by the um apartheid regime that was still playing out when we first arrived in KwaZulu-Natal in 94 there were still turf wars going on between the Carter Freedom Zulu Party and the um, ANC um and then there was um of course a tremendous amount of upsurge of violence that suddenly a euphoria in violence after the liberation um and the really it gave way for um people to move through a very very painful process that there was amnesty for those that came forward and acknowledged um crimes against humanity that they participated in or or did directly themselves um and that was um primarily the, those supporting the apartheid regime but it was also very complex because the police were multi-race um and so some of the police were involved as well that weren't all necessarily white police it wasn't completely along race lines but it what it did it enable people to find out what happened to their loved ones there were a lot of disappeared 
people, um, where they were buried, which is very important in the African culture, um, to, like in all cultures, but particularly there to take the spirit and the body and to... Um, did it help? I think it did give some... Um, I think it was enormous. I think it was an enormous model but it also a lot of people criticized it, the next generation, the call the freedom generation, that it didn't really allow for their anger and it didn't really allow for compensation in the way that they would like to see. So I think we're into the second wave of that now. I'm not quite sure where that will go. A lot of issues around land and ownership and so on. But certainly at the moment that it, that it came about in the country, it was like a sort of a soul cleansing and so it went on uh, over many, many um, months, I think a year or so longer. Um, and it went around to all the villages um, and people were able to gather in village halls, town halls, city halls and, and, and listen. And there were remarkable moments of forgiveness, remarkable moments of, of profound um, sorrow at the harms done, um, remarkable um, confessions and so on. And there were also those that abused the system. But generally speaking, it was a... I think it was a model they used it in Northern Ireland to some degree around the troubles there. I think basically it's quite a good model. I don't think it's the end of the story. It's never the end, you know. <laughs> but it's a good transitional place for, to coming out of extreme conflict because it gives a platform for people to, to be heard and to hear. The criticism was that should, should some people have been given amnesty and those that didn't really sort of fess up they received prison sentences. So there was some sort of retribution for um, crimes. Um, but um, yeah, I think for the soul of South Africa, in particular, it was guided by um, Desmond Tutu primarily and Mr. Mandela and the other leaders. Desmond Tutu was very uh, big in that, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I think it was um, a, a tremendous consciousness that it gave the country. Mm. It did, like from outside, it looked wonderful. So I'm just, I'm very interested in restore, seeing restorative justice yes. here in America. Sure, yeah. And prison reform and so on. It I sounds think there's like a big a place for that in the U.S. and, and uh, restorative justice and re recompensation and there's certainly... So um, just to honor that uh, we finish at five o'clock and we're now at five o'clock so that people can move on to, to their various things this, the, that they've got going this evening. Um, yeah, it's been uh, really nice to be here today with you all <laughs> and to practice. And we, we really very much appreciate um, making the efforts to come and to reflect on these themes. You know, um, a, a lot of the Dharma has been very internal in, and um, just to bring it out, I know a lot of work on collective building sanghas and New York Insight has done that. Um, and it feels like the next wave is around looking at systemic issues like was just mentioned and how the Dharma can really, especially at this time, inform those processes. It's not to say we've got neat answers or a neat package, uh, but I think there is a really profound interface there that we can explore and con can continue to explore personally and collectively. So um, as we uh, come to the end, let's just finish off more formally, just take a few minutes to share the blessings from our practice today.
So we ref reflected on many of our ancestors and the peoples of this original peoples of this land and touch into themes of those that have been decimated and those who's, uh, uh, who have struggled. Um, the struggle of birthing this country in this area of New York, both in the positive light and in the extremely challenging ways that that story unfolded. And then our own peace, personal relationship and stream of ancestry that has uh, brought us to where we are. So before we finish our day, as we brought this to mind, let's uh, just share any blessings from our practice. The taking of precepts, the contemplating the Dharma, practicing for awakening and liberation through compassion and wisdom. May any benefits from our day together ripple out above and below and all around, touching all beings, whatever situation they're in, born and to be born, and those that have passed over, those from before and those to come. May their hearts be at ease, may they be liberated, and may they be free from suffering. May all of us, may all of our hearts be freed, may we be liberated, and may we be free from suffering. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Right. See you again.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.